Welcome to Sex Positive Families, where parents, caring adults, and advocates come to grow and learn about sexual health in a supportive community. I'm your host and the founder of SPF, Melissa Carnegie. Join me and special guests as we dive into the art of sex positive parenting. Together, we will shake the shame and trash the taboos to strengthen sexual health talks with the children in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, families. I have a question for you. What were your earliest experiences with pleasure? Do you remember being in the womb or those first cuddles with a caring adult? Probably not that far back, right? Well, some of us may recall a little further down the road when we discovered pleasure in the context of our own bodies and masturbation, and there may or may not have been shame associated with those experiences. Well, in this episode, we're exploring pleasure in the early years of a child's life and how parents and caring adults can best support their child's understanding of pleasure without taboo, especially before it's even about sex. Helping me explore this important topic is Lydia M. Bowers, a sex educator who is passionate about helping families and other educators understand and appropriately support sexual development in individuals from birth to adulthood. She is a pleasure professional with O-School and an American Sexual Health Association ambassador with over 15 years experience as an early childhood educator. Want to know how to foster a healthy understanding of pleasure? Let's have a listen. I'm so excited to have you with us, especially for this topic. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Yes. So glad to have you. Before we get started, if you can share with us, what has your journey been like to the work that you're doing now? I was in the early childhood education field for about 15 years. I spent time as a classroom teacher for infants, toddlers, uh, spent quite a bit of time in preschool specifically. And during that time, I was personally dealing with a lot of painful uterovaginal sexual issues. Mm. And through that, I had started studying and researching sexual health specifically and realized that there was a big lack of information when it came to sexual development and young children. Mm -hmm. And so I had at some point thought that early childhood and sexual education were two very separate things with no overlap Mm -hmm. and quickly realized that wasn't the case. And so a lot of studying and research that I've done has been in that area and have been able to um, talk at different conferences and talking to early childhood educators about sexuality development and talking to sex educators about early childhood development and kind of finding ways to sort of bridge that and help people realize that it's something we have to start talking about really early. Mm -hmm. I think we certainly recognize that we need to be teaching kids different things, especially when it comes to issues about bodily autonomy and consent. And normally what we see our sex education things starting up about puberty time, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of recognizing that, no, these are things that we have to start talking about with children in very different ways, but much earlier as well. Absolutely. We couldn't agree more here at SPF. And you have some personal experience, am I right, as far as 
Uh, aside from working with children, you also have some children in the home? I do. I have an 11-year-old and a 3-year-old. The 3-year-old definitely gets the benefit of my more recent studying and expertise. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things where you always look back, especially when you have children of different ages and you think, oh, I wish I would have done this differently. But again, it's one of those things where it's never too late to start. And so even though we may not have used all the right terms or the right language with my 11-year-old, we certainly are uh, doing what we can now to kind of change that and how we phrase things and how we frame attitudes about relationships and our bodies and sex and things like that. I love that you bring that up because, you know, it, it is a journey. It's not, you know, the one and done conversation. And so really it's it's lifelong. And even as they move into adulthood and they're no longer children, that's a whole other type of relationship, you know, that you're going to have with them. And then as you evolve and get older as well and into your sexuality in a different age range yourself, you know, it just it, it all just evolves together. So I can totally relate to that. And I know a lot of folks that are listening can too. My kids are 10 years apart. So I totally get it that those moments where I'm like, mm, yeah, I, I, I wish I knew that. <laughs> I wish I read that. I wish I you know, right. said that. <laughs> So there have been a couple things I have gone back into my now 18-year-old daughter and especially doing this work where I'm like, you know, we never talked about that. I, I think let, let's have a talk about that now. Yes. <laughs> She's like, okay, mom. <laughs> so today yes. we are going to talk about pleasure. What does talking about pleasure with children look like in the early years? Well, one of the things that I think it's important for us to recognize this is when we're talking about any aspect of sexual development or issues, but pleasure in particular is recognizing when we have feelings of discomfort that crop up Mm -hmm. because what often happens and is that we as adults tend to take our understanding and knowledge of sexuality and apply that to children. So for example, young children, especially preschool and under, will play with their body parts, including their genitals. And often adults see that and we take what we know about or our experiences with masturbation and we kind of panic and go, oh no, you shouldn't do that. Not understanding that for a child, you know, they're not picturing somebody naked. (laughs) They're not, you know, imagining some hot and heavy thing. They are simply touching a different part of their body and experiencing that their body can feel good. Right. And one of the things, so when we're talking about pleasure specifically, I love that you have, I know you have merchandise that says, you know, pleasure is not a bad word. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not a dirty word, right? Because not that's a dirty word. Yes. Right. Because that's what we're, that's what our society even just kind of playfully tells us is that there are things that are dirty and bad and, you know, and kinky and all these things that, right. That just it yes. puts a negative connotation. Yeah. So even when we hear it saying, well, children experiencing pleasure, somehow we automatically equate the word pleasure with sex, mm-hmm. which is fine. That certainly can be one aspect of it as an adult. 
But when we're talking about young children, young children experience pleasure. You know, pleasure is this feeling of joy, of happiness, of excitement, of feeling good. And those are wonderful, very non-sexual things. So when we're talking about pleasure specifically, whether we are dealing with a child playing or we're talking about an adult having a positive sexual interaction, our brains are kind of wired to respond to pleasure very similarly. And there is part of the brain and people often refer to it, sometimes they refer to it as the pleasure center, which really it's more the reward center. And that when we are experiencing something pleasurable, it releases the chemical dopamine. Dopamine is like a save button. And that when that's released and is present, we remember it more and it holds more significance. And that's why like for early childhood, play is so important. And if you start looking into early childhood studies, there's so much on how children have to learn through play. And that dopamine is part of it because when they're playing, when they're experiencing pleasure from what they're doing, they hold on to it longer. Yeah. And then there's, you know, other hormones and chemicals, oxytocin, serotonin, all these things that um, are released by the brain that are, you know, calming and soothing and mood regulating. And when we are helping children identify these moments of pleasure non-sexually, then what happens is they can start learning to recognize that and trust that in their own bodies So at some point down the line, when they're dealing with sexual pleasure, they can still be in tune with their bodies and recognize, yeah, this is something that feels good. This is pleasure or no, this isn't pleasure. And maybe I need to figure out what's wrong or why I'm not feeling pleasurable about this. Yeah. You know, what's coming to mind for me too, when you talked about play is sadly, our society, our American culture, as we get older it starts to send us the message that, you know, we've got to get serious, right? Now that we're adults, we've got to put the play away and we've got to get to work and we've got to get serious. So hearing you say that, like the first thing that came to my mind is like, wow, you know, we we really get to tap into that and get more encouraged to do that when we're younger and make, you know, those like imprints, you know, like like you're talking about. But then our, our culture often pulls that rug out from under us. Absolutely. And as a culture, we are almost taking that from children earlier and earlier. Yes, yes. I mean, if you look in so many kindergartens, it's sitting down and doing worksheets. Yes, and yeah. we're going to cut this exact way, and we're going to glue this exact way, and we're going to color this exact way. And children's brains aren't wired for that that young. What we're doing as a society frankly, is detaching children from their own bodies. Yes. And as a culture, we we struggle with that. And we see now where, and I think this plays into some of the issues where we're seeing more and more people come forward, um, and not just in cases of violent assault, mm-hmm. but where people are saying, okay, wait a minute, I knew something was wrong about this, but I didn't know what, and now I recognize it as being assault or you know misconduct and some of that I think has to do with the fact that we are very detached from ourselves Mm. and so it's hard for us we start from a young age sort of being separated either separated from pleasure or being told regularly 
that what you're feeling isn't accurate. So right. sometimes it could be something like you're sitting in kindergarten and you're antsy and you're wiggling around and you just need to move and you're being told you need to sit still, you need to sit still. Yep. Or things like when we tell a child, well, you need to hug grandma mm-hmm. because it will make her feel sad. And the child saying, feeling like, well, I don't want to hug grandma, but we're saying, don't be silly that's your grandma, you hug them anyway. And we negate children's feelings Mm -hmm. and those feelings of what feels pleasurable and what doesn't. But then we expect them as adults to be able to know what feels good and what doesn't. And, you know, we see a lot of victim shaming or blaming saying, well, you should have known better or shouldn't you have realized something was going on? But we've started conditioning children from so young to not recognize the difference between what truly feels pleasurable and not, or, you know, what feels good to your body or not, or to your feelings. How can parents and caring adults initiate, you know, some discussions around it? What are some topics or some areas that they can focus on? Well, I think one thing that is important is to work on And this is something for adults to work on as well. So it's great, especially for families, um, if as parents and, you know, caregivers, if you are doing this, then you're able to help identify it more in children. Mm -hmm. But just being mindful and being aware what feels good. So even if you're sitting down to a meal as a family and uh, more than just, oh, this is delicious, but let's get specific. Yeah. What is this taste that you are enjoying? What is this texture that you enjoy? And almost make a game out of how can we identify what we really like? Mm -hmm. What is feeling good to us? And because the more we practice being um, intentionally present Mm, and mindful in these moments, it helps us recognize as well as models that for children who will probably pick things up faster than most adults will when it comes to (laughs) recognizing moments of pleasure. For sure. Um, It can also be, especially when we're talking much younger children, with toilet training is a big one. Where even with that, um, what happens a lot of the time is that we will, during potty training, we will praise children. Okay, yeah, you went. But we'll still say things like, ooh, that's so stinky, that's, you know, or mm-hmm. get that out. And we'll still laugh about it and joke about it. But that's another area that is a rich way to help children identify what feels good and that their bodies are good. So instead of saying, ooh, that's really stinky, let's get that out, instead saying, I bet that felt good to get that out of your body. Mm, Your body is good for doing its job. Now let's get you some, you know, clean underwear or a clean diaper and that will feel good too. So even just framing potty training Mm -hmm. as this way of recognizing these are the sensations my body feels and that these body parts aren't dirty or bad. These body parts are doing their job Mm -hmm. to make me feel good. And so even moments like that where it's not, it's not playing on the playground or eating ice cream, which those moments are pleasurable as well and we can identify those, but just those small moments every day 
particularly when it comes to sensations that our bodies are feeling. Yes, giving them the language, you know, so that they can describe these feelings that they're having. I feel like there are a lot of adults who may struggle with that, with talking about their own pleasure, not just experiencing it, but really talking about it and having the right words or descriptors or feeling like it's safe to have those types of discussions. Yes. And so what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, if we can start early, then we are, we're sending them that message that their pleasure, there's nothing wrong with their pleasure. There's everything right about their pleasure. And here are some ways that they can describe it. Because then when we can describe what feels good to us, to our partners or to someone else in our lives, then we're more likely to be able to negotiate, right? The things that we want and say no or yes affirmatively. Start with those tangible descriptors, you know, about this physical sensation feels good. Then it's easier to step into more of things like emotions, Mm. you know, where we can say, okay, yes, that, that didn't feel good when somebody called you that name. So you can recognize, okay, yeah, what doesn't feel good as well? Because then those are important steps, especially when we're talking to children about safety, recognizing too, to trust ourselves and trust our feelings, trust those gut instincts that, okay, something doesn't feel right. And so as, you know, when we can first talk about physical sensations and what feels good, then we can start building on that and talk about those feelings that feel good. You know, it feels good when your friend shared a toy with you makes us feel safe or you know when someone is upset feeling unsafe especially things you know if a child is scared that is a great way to frame saying it doesn't feel good when we're scared being scared makes us feel unsafe and that's a great way to identify that because then you can use that when you're talking to children about if somebody ever makes you feel unsafe this is what you need to do because then they can connect it with some with that feeling that they've already experienced in a different capacity. Right. And being able to have these conversations about what feels good and what do I like, especially with a family, also helps very early understanding that things that we may like and things that we may find pleasurable may be different for different people. Mm-hmm. And that's such a beautiful, simple way to have that conversation. My children love to point out who in the family likes to eat olives and who in the family likes to eat peanut butter and mm-hmm. identifying who likes what and who doesn't like what, but mm-hmm. recognizing that it's not a big deal. And that's, again, one of these building blocks to later on that says, okay, yeah, it's fine if we don't all like the same thing. And I might find this pleasurable, but you don't. And since you don't like peanut butter, I'm not going to force peanut butter on you. Mm -hmm. And so these are just, again, just these very simple early ways to start having these conversations and exploring this language and the ideas of being in touch with ourselves as well as recognizing differences in others and respecting that as well. Yes. So often, especially with young children, you know, children throw tantrums and they cry (laughs) for what we feel like maybe no reason. 
And it's easy for us as adults to say something like, stop crying, it's not a big deal, stop Mm -hmm. crying, it'll be fine. But we have to recognize that as adults, we struggle enough with identifying our own emotions, Mm -hmm. let alone these tiny people who have such big emotions in these tiny bodies. And so something, yeah, just getting down on their level Mm -hmm. and saying, I can see that you are sad. Is that how you're feeling? Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, giving them terms for these things that they're feeling. But yeah, being able to pick up on those nonverbal cues. And we can also help children recognize some of those. Mm -hmm. In our house, we have pets. And my three-year-old loves to pick up the cat, but the cat does not always like to be picked up. Yeah. And so that's something where with him, where we'll say, okay, now when Rapunzel is squirming like that, that means she doesn't want to be held. So even though she can't say no, we still need to put her down. Yes. And we can help with that. And sometimes that's the case, you know, if there's younger siblings, you know, if you're out on a walk and there's, you know, a bird or a squirrel or something, recognizing that, okay, here are these ways that we can recognize nonverbal communication in others. Absolutely. And so this capacity for our children to experience pleasure, this is not something that turns on at a certain age. Inside the uterus Mm -hmm. where there are, there is thumb sucking and, you know, and some of these obviously are reflex things, you know, and following light, you know, we are from the beginning seeking soothing Mm -hmm. and looking for what feels good. I think that's why this conversation and this information is so important. Helping all, you know, adults, parents, especially if you're feeling any level of discomfort about this, understand that, this is not about sex. There will come a time when it will be about sex for your young person. But in these beginning and early years, it is not. It is just, you know, a function of, you know, being a human and navigating this world and the special relationships and the bonding. And we do have to think when we are dealing with young children, Think about, okay, what is this going to look like in five years? What is this going to look like in 10 years? What is this going to look like in 15 years? So when we tell a child, no, don't be silly, you're crying for no reason, or don't touch that part of your body, it's dirty and bad, what do those messages then say to them? Because those things get ingrained and they become these inner monologues and inner voices Absolutely. and many of us dealt with that you know mm-hmm. many of us have grown up with some of these things and we are still dealing with messages that we received as children emily nagoski wrote a book called come as you are mm-hmm. and which is a wonderful book and in it she gives this example of a garden and that every person is born with this plot of land and When we're young, you know, when we're babies, when we're young children, our caregivers are planting and tending this garden. And eventually, someday, we have to take over maintenance. But we have in this garden what was planted and cared for or neglected for us. As adults, we are navigating our own gardens and with what 
we are trying to intentionally take care of and what has been there from the beginning. And we have to recognize that we are taking care of these gardens for our children. So some of these things that we hope we are planting and tending and nurturing, you know, we hope they will continue to once they take over. We have to recognize too that if we're wanting for our children someday to have healthy sex lives, but we don't talk to children about it or um, give any foundation for it, then when they're old enough, they're left with no resources and have to figure it out for themselves. And that's unfortunately where a lot of us as adults find ourselves. We're adult children (laughs) going about. And then it's really hard because then many of us become parents. And then we, you know, are trying to figure this out. This has been really rich. We're going to wrap up here. And I would love to know your perspective on what sex positivity means to you. Uh, Sex positivity to me means recognizing that our bodies are good, that pleasure is good, and particularly sex positivity when it comes to parenting is that sexuality is much bigger than just sex mm-hmm. and that sexuality is just another facet of our humanity. And I think really what it comes down to is sex positivity is recognizing that and valuing that aspect of ourselves just as much as any other aspect. Beautiful. So what projects do you have going on? What things do you have brewing for 2018? Well, currently I am one of the sex educators and pleasure professionals with O School, which is a platform for free online sex education. And so right now I am doing live streams usually twice a month. So every other Saturday night um, at nine Eastern, um, I am doing workshops on various topics. Usually it's related to sexuality and childhood and parenting. Uh, I also do information on sexuality when it comes to dealing with pain or trauma, uh, working with partners. Uh, My husband and I are doing a stream together about partners of trauma survivors. Mm, And um, I'm also working with University of Cincinnati starting uh, this spring to present information um, in the community on childhood, sexual development, and um, some of these topics around that. Those are kind of my big focuses this year. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I think that, you know, I certainly have tuned into some old old school live streams and they're such an amazing resource. Like just having so many sex educators, you know, sex therapists, uh, you know, sexual health advocates that are really knowledgeable and really relatable, you know, and just having you all as resources live and, you know, ready and willing to answer any questions and the range of topics that are available oh, to folks, amazing. isn't it? It's just amazing. And, and then especially, you know, for 
parents, you know, and caring adults. I love that, you know, that they have, you know, you there and, and that perspective because it's, again, it's just so important that, you know, we're nurturing that next generation, pursuing some better outcomes. So... So how can people find you in terms of, you know, wanting to connect with you or work with you? Probably the easiest way is my website, which is www.lydiambowers.com. I'm Lydia M. Bowers on all the different social medias as well. But my website's definitely the easiest way. I have a newsletter there where... I'll send out updates to like the live streams and workshops and um, additional resources and things like that. So that would, that would be the best way. Excellent. Well, I will make sure that um, all of those uh, links are included in the show notes. Lydia is also really good and and you're really good at this with your other live streams that you do as well, you know, at creating um, some really comprehensive resource lists and things like that. So I'll make sure that we also include some resources uh, relevant to this topic. So folks want to learn more or read more about it. Yes. I really appreciate you. Um, sharing this time with us. Uh, You've been a wealth of knowledge and looking forward to, you know, continuing this work. It's, it's definitely needed. Yes. Thank you for what you do as well. I, you are on all of, (laughs) all of my parenting and family related resource lists. (laughs) Thank you. That, that means a lot. There, there can never be too many, you know, sex educators out there and folks doing this work. We have a lot of healing to do. Yes, and a lot, yes. a lot to, to, to learn. So I, I love that we can collaborate in these ways and really elevate these messages because um, it takes a village. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lydia. Thank you. If you liked this episode and podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or Google Play so more people can find us. And you can always visit us on our website at sexpositivefamilies.com. There you can shop Sex Positive swag in our online store, connect with us across our social media platforms, join our Facebook community, and learn more resources to help support sexual health in your family. Until next time, I'm Melissa Carnegie. Thank you for supporting content that strengthens sexual health talks in families.